Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today I'm excited to meet uh, Dr. Ronnie Kurtz, who's written a book called Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul. There's so much in here, and I want to get to it quickly because I have so many questions to ask him. The first question I asked him is, can you come back? He hasn't even done his first interview yet, so let's uh, let's bring him on. Ronnie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Happy to already sign up for round two. <laughs> awesome. Let me ask you this question. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who has uh, his doctorate in Christian uh, theology, and he w- we were talking about the whole nature of you, to earn a PhD, you have to be bringing in uh, s- new knowledge to the world that didn't previously exist. And when it comes to theology, how do we even look at that? I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, and yeah, if you generate if you generate something— and this is what you're writing your thesis on. What happens, Ronnie, in the next 20 years if you change your mind and go, ah, yeah, exactly I don't know if I buy right. that anymore? Yeah, that's a, that is the plight of every theological PhD student. And uh, typically, the way that I view it is in a 2,000-year-old faith, uh, if it's new, it's probably not good. <laughs> right. And so I often tell my students and kind of the the thought I had for myself was what I'm going for is novel or what I'm going for is nuance, not novelty. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. So let's look yeah. at a, a quick Lifeway research uh, poll that said 54% of Americans say theological beliefs are not a matter of objective truth, but rather are based on subjective personal opinion. Ooh, that's a five alarm fire. <laughs> that's exactly right. That is the exact right phrase for it. Yeah, and it's it's not super surprising. Um, anyone who's spent much time in the church has maybe seen this on the ground. A kind of a bend towards the pragmatic has made the life of the mind kind of taken a back seat. And uh, what my contention is in this book is that those two things are not divorced. We don't have to choose either the life of the mind or the life of the soul, but they're deeply connected. So let me make one other comment, and I've got a bunch of questions for you, which we'll probably cover a little bit today and a little bit the next time you're on. But many uh, Christians are intimidated by the idea of pursuing theological studies, and they they are frustrated by the disunity and the debates that come from theological conviction. And you, you see that theologians raging with each other, and all this back-and-forth arguments and hostility— what are we supposed to make of that? What what part of that is healthy going, okay, we've got source material, everybody's looking at source material in their own way and coming to their conclusions, and there's differences. Yeah, if someone's looking at the theological landscape today and the conversation's taking place in the name of, you know, quote-unquote theology, and they are discouraged or dismayed, I'll just be frank, they're not alone. There's there is a sickness that seems to be growing, and that sickness is called division and discord. We are, it seems, from my seat, we're losing the ability to disagree and remain civil. And so having conviction 
actually having a backbone and saying what you believe and saying the Bible does say some things are right and some things are wrong seems to be kind of divorced from the ability to also view your neighbor in the image of God. And I think keeping them together will do a lot of maximization of our witness, maximization of our joy, maximization of our love of our neighbor, of the glory of God, etc. And so I don't think it has to be this way. I don't think we have to choose. We can either be right or we can be loving. In my view, the Bible doesn't actually give us that dichotomy. We have to be both. We have mm. to marry truth and grace together. Mm-hmm. So that verse where Paul says, um, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When every time I read that, I think, so is there a way to know how we have rightfully understood the truth? Because it seems like you take any topic in Scripture and there's nine different takes on it from nine different yeah. theologians. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I do think, that, to be frank, I can't give you a formula. You know, you take your theological proposition, run it through this formula, and out pops whether or not you did it correctly. Sure. One of the things I argue for in the book, though, I do think there is a wise approach bringing the fruit of the Spirit into the conversation. If you look at Galatians 5, the 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 chapter where the fruit of the Spirit appear, Paul actually gives two lists. We often focus on the first one, the fruit of the Spirit, but there is another one, and that's the works of the flesh. While the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, peace, joy, patience, self-control, gentleness, etc., the works of the flesh are things like factions, divisions, anger, selfish ambition, etc. And Paul says these two lists will lead to two different outcomes. The, the fruit of the Spirit will lead to bearing the burden of your brother. The works of the flesh will lead to devouring your brother or sister. Mm. And so the question I have for those who are thinking, who are pursuing the Christian life of the mind, is which one is more accurate of your thought life? Is your thought life leading to the bearing of your brother and sister's burdens, your theology leading to loving your neighbor, or does your theology lead to outbursts of anger? selfish ambition into the devouring of one another. If it leads to that, it sounds more like it's maybe a work of the flesh than it is of through the Spirit. Mm, so interesting. Uh, Dr. Ronnie Kurtz is my guest. His book is called Fruitful, Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul. So is it is your official name Ronald? It's not. It's actually just Ronnie. Okay, cool, because that sounds like you're an NFL tight end or something. <laughs> Touchdown, Ronnie Kurtz, you know. But Ronald Kurtz it. sounds like a theologian, which is what you are. I know. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, I really like that. All right, let's get back to um, uh, there, there's so many things vying for our attention every day. Why should we as believers give our attention to theology? Yeah, I think we should give our attention to theology because God is worth it. Amen. The, the, <clears throat> pardon, the, the goal of theology— is not knowledge. The goal of theology is not just knowing a bunch of fancy words or memorizing verses or memorizing arguments or whatever it may be. The goal of theology is God. What we're after in the theological pursuit is a bigger vision of who God is and what He's doing in the world. And a, I would argue one of the ways that we can see that theology and practice don't have to be rooted against one another is by recognizing that there are very few more practical things in the Christian life than getting an eyeful of God. And if we can look at Him until we begin to look like Him, 
Mm. Uh, we, we will have deep joy rooted in our soul. There are many ways to, to think about God, and I think theology just happens to be a really good tool. And so if the goal of the Christian life is God, and theology is one way we can get him, get an eyeful of him, then I think it's a worthwhile tool to pick up. Mm-hmm. Ronnie, have you seen theology used as a weapon? Oh, absolutely. Ooh. <laughs> I say wish more so about bad that. I could say no. Yeah, I wish so bad I could say no. But sadly, theology, like the pursuit of any kind of intellectual pursuit, can be used to leverage pride. It can be used to leverage belittlement. It can be used to leverage even people working directly against human flourishing. And uh, since it's supposed to be the contemplation of God and all things in relation to God, when it's used in those kind of malpractice ways, it's extra egregious because it should be used for God's glory, for our joy, for the good of our neighbor, but often it's used for these misaligned purposes. Mm-hmm. When you started studying theology, Ronnie, were, were you uh, aware of the fact that all this wisdom and knowledge you could gain uh, could could produce some arrogance in you? Because let, let's face it, in a, in a Bible study, you're going to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, I, I think I came to theology already pretty arrogant. <laughs> uh, sorry, that made me laugh, but it did. Yeah, to be totally frank, I think I came to the study pretty arrogant already, and what I realized is I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, the amen. wonderful thing about theological pursuit is the deeper you go, the deeper you realize it gets. And so, uh, you know, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, London preacher, once said that theology can make you realize that you're but of yesterday. You're nothing oh, wow. compared to the, the grandeur of God. And um, there, in my opinion, there's the idea of an arrogant theologian is an, is an oxymoron or even just a contradiction, because if theology is a study of God, we ought to look like the one we study. Amen. And the one we study is the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave for yeah. our good in the gospel. Yeah. And so that ought to be the posture and bent of our life as well. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Kurtz is my guest. Ronnie, when you talk about arrogance, let's also add in self-righteousness, because those seem to be things that really turn people off quickly. If, mm-hmm. if you're talking to someone who is outside of God's uh, family and you can say something to the effect of, uh, I know the truth and you don't, so ha-ha. You know, it's like that's the last, <laughs> last thing they want to hear, even though we do know the truth. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's almost like some people think of knowledge as a, as a um, positional good. Hmm. And as long as I have more of it than my neighbor, then I can be, then I can be happy with myself. And instead, I think we should think of knowledge, wisdom, as a, uh, as a joy that's meant to be shared. And when we see people who don't have as much knowledge as we do, we ought not to belittle them. We ought to pity the fact that they're not experiencing this joy. Amen. And so instead of thinking them as an enemy to be one or someone to destroy, we can think of them as a fellow pilgrim on the way to the true homeland and missing out on joy. And we can invite them to come into the joy that is knowing our great God. That sounds like uh, the loving approach. <laughs> That's what I'm after. Okay, so. good. I like that. Let me take a break. Uh, Dr. Ronnie Kurtz is my guest. His book is called Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul. We'll be right back.
we would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. What if our speech and our conduct were seasoned more with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know the list, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and then how might the church's unity be restored and our witness be fully maximized if we were characterized in that way instead of what's going on in the world? So theology may not be the most obvious candidate in helping reorient our lives toward the fruit of the Spirit. But it's a great place to start, and my guest is Dr. Ronnie Kurtz. He's written a book called Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to, to the Life of the Soul. So, Ronnie, you, when you're writing this uh, and studying theology, how did, it, uh, sh- how did it shape your heart to become more Christ-like? Yeah, I think um, there's so many ways I could answer this question. And, and in the book, with each chapter, I actually work through a particular teaching in the Christian faith to show how it can lead to a particular fruit of the Spirit being rooted in your soul. So there really are so many ways I can answer this, but let me just say it like this. Um, I love my wife. She's downstairs with our daughter right now. Sadly, our whole family has COVID at the moment. We are uh, quarantined in our little house, but uh, love my wife and my love and adoration of her drives me to just want to know more about her Mm -hmm. and her excellence is the kind of excellence where the more I get to know about her, the more I admire her and deeply love her. And while my wife is absolutely amazing, the Lord is infinitely greater. And so again, uh, a line that I said in the first part of this interview is that I think we can actually look at Christ until we begin to look like him. And I think those two things are actually connected Uh, We see Paul even say in 2 Corinthians that we are to behold him from one degree of glory to another. There is a direct connection between our acting in beholding him, contemplating him, keeping our mind's eye pointed his direction, keeping our gaze his direction and the conformity of our soul to his image from one degree of glory to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing. Thank you for that, Ronnie Kurtz. That was a great answer. I want to ask, uh, this one is a little bit more of a loaded question, but in your book, you do a wonderful job of examining the, the points of, of doctrine and biblical passages and theological wisdom, and you do that all with an eye toward cultivating spiritual fruit. Now, how is that different from when you're taking and pursuing with an eye towards cultivating knowledge and being right and having the right answers. Yeah, that's right. You know, in a way, it's not totally different. What I'm trying to do is say getting to the right conclusion in theology is only part of the theological job. you got to keep going because theology is practical. The reality is, I tell my students often, I'm, a la- I'm, I'm okay with them doing theology for theology's sake as soon as they can find for me one clause in the New Testament that's just theologizing, that's not meant to lead to somebody's good. Mm. And the reality is they can't. And so coming to the right conclusion is an important step in theology, but it's not 
all that that it is. Also, the theological enterprise is taking those right conclusions and asking, so what? What does this mean for the way that I love God, have joy, and love my neighbor? How can I press this theoretical truth into uh, conformity to Jesus Christ and let knowledge be pressed by God's grace into wisdom? Because knowledge is good, but wisdom is better. Mm -hmm. Ronnie, why does theology often get a bad rap? And, and what are some of the lies or misconceptions we tend to believe about theology? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, it's a question I appreciate as a theologian, of course. Um, one is I would say uh, theology gets a bad rap because it seems like some folks believe it's a job reserved for a certain few of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really damaging lie. The reality is every single person who's ever lived, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, every single person who has ever lived is a theologian, period. If you have thoughts about God, or if you've ever said anything about God, if you have opinions on God, you are a theologian. Mm. So the question is not, are you going to be a theologian? That's already answered. That answer is yes. So the question is, will you be a good one? Will you be a faithful one? And so I think the fact that some people think of theology as a task reserved for, you know, a certain kind of person and don't see theology deeply connected to their own apprehension of beauty, their own apprehension of joy and who God is, I think that's one of the major reasons it can get a bad rap of, of many others. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Kurtz is my guest, and the name of Ronnie's book is Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of of the soul. Now, Ronnie, I would love for you to talk about the relationship between our thoughts and our affections. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, Go you, ahead. Sorry. You talk about this in your books, but, but give, give our listeners uh, some understanding of this. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite subjects to think about. It's just, uh, the reason is because the reality is your mind and your affections are way closer than you realize. That which you contemplate, you will grow to appreciate. That, that's just the fact. The more you think about something, the more you sit and dwell on the beauty of something, the more you will appreciate it. And not just like an ethereal appreciation, but like a down in the deep parts of your soul kind of appreciation, uh, where you use the word affection. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that which you contemplate, you will have an affection for. And so as we try to take our mind out of the everyday rhythms of our life and make time for true contemplation of the Word of God, of what He's doing in the world, we will have our affections stirred for Him. I like that. So, I don't hear this very often. I don't think we talk about personal holiness very often. It just doesn't come up. But how does this your book help discover what true holiness is, and let's just say, let's make it something we want to make an, a, an attractive pursuit. We want to we do this. How, yeah. will, how will it help? I think theology can be a motivator for holiness and the, the, the life of sanctification. I think that's, that's a, a pretty clear connection. One of the things theology helps us do is remember. And that phrase, remember, is all over. It's an imperative all over the Scripture. As, as you might know, as, the, as you might recall, uh, as the Israelites cross the Jordan, they are, re- they are 
asked to set up a, a, a statue of 12 stones so that they might remember what God had done in getting them into the promised land across the Jordan. And those, doc, those, those stones that the Israelites set up as a kind of a sign, a physical sign to remember, the hope was their children would ask them, hey, what do these stones mean to you? And the, the parents would say, hey, these stones are remarkably important because they help us remind, remember that story where God was faithful. Even when Moses wasn't faithful and he died outside of the promised land, God got us across the, the Jordan. And in a way, I think doctrines can act like those stones. Mm. We can, our children might say, hey, what do these doctrines mean to you? What does justification by faith mean to you? What does the death of Jesus mean to you? And we can say, oh, these doctrines are rich in beauty, and they remind us that God is good, and He will once again get us across the Jordan into the promised land. And it can stir us up into holiness and sanctification as we reflect and remember what God has done. So it might help with people who are confused about the relationship between doctrine and Christian living. And this is going to help connect those dots, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's a hope. Yeah. So there is plenty of disunity and discord among Christians today. It seems that the arguments are more frequent. Maybe it's how we're doing it also. I mean, if you sit behind Mm -hmm. uh, a keyboard in in the safety of your own home, you have a lot more courage to say things than you would if you were in a real actual discussion with real actual live people. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think we are um, we are increasingly prone to speak and slow to listen, which is the exact reversal of the biblical command. <laughs> and um, having social media platforms where we're able to publish our every thought, any given moment about any topic readily available to us is not helping the situation. And so I think one of the most countercultural things Christians can do at this point in our day and age is be stable, not constantly fighting, not acting like every theological debate is a matter of life or death, or every political thing is a matter of life or death, and be a rooted, kind, wise, stable thinker who has conviction, right? We don't want to give up our our Christian conviction, but who can communicate those convictions with kindness that kind of thinker is remarkably countercultural in today's world. Where everyone is screaming, a person who is rooted and stable will simply look and sound different. Yeah, because there's plenty of harsh words and, and biting sarcasm and tearing down of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's exactly right, yeah. and obviously it shouldn't be this way. No, I agree. Uh, Ronnie, what a delight. And I'm sorry your family is a little under the weather right now. I, I pray you get through that <laughs> yeah. quickly. And uh, everybody we're on has... the tail end of it, so we're, we're getting through. Good. And I hope you're getting uh, people helping out with food and all that stuff. Just being yeah, good. we are. Good to the Kurtz family. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, Ronnie. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. You bet. Dr. Ronnie Kurtz is my guest. His book is Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul. All right. We're going to take a little break and then some Bible teaching with one of my fave teachers, my dear, dear, dear friend, Dr. Greg Eddington.
A mysterious star in the sky. It's bright like one and shines like one. A baby lying in a manger. There he is, after all this time. And a fulfilled promise. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In Fulfillment is a biblical audio drama, over 40 voice actors, and the fulfilled moments of Jesus' life. Search In Fulfillment wherever you listen to podcasts, or just go to MyFaithRadio.com. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I have to admit, I'm a simple guy. I want you to know Jesus, and I want you to grow in your faith and understanding of Him. So I love Bible studies, and today I'm going to have a chance to start a brand new series on the uh, Apostle John to the early church, some of those letters, 1 John 1, 2, and 3, kind of selected verses from all three, and we're going to do that with my friend and teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington. Always glad to have him on the show. Welcome back, Greg. Great to be on the show, Bill. Thanks much. Well, welcome to our first lesson, the study of the Apostle John's three letters. But here's a little pop quiz to start us off. The Apostle Paul was known as the Apostle of what? Faith. The Apostle Peter was known as the Apostle of what? Hope. The Apostle John was known as the Apostle of what? Love. There we have it. Faith, hope, and love. All three are writers of New Testament letters. And those three, which are all mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, we embrace as we abide in Jesus. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral one, the origin of John's letters. Early church fathers like Polycarp back in 100 A.D. and Papias as well as ancient historians have no doubt the Apostle John was one of the original twelve, the brother of James, one of the two sons of Zebedee, nicknamed Sons of Thunder, and the one whom Jesus loved, that John is the author of these three letters. John wrote his gospel sometime in the 80s A.D. and followed that with his three letters. He was known as the Apostle of Love because he was an old man when he wrote these letters, and by tradition, He was carried around on a stretcher by his friends, and he would tell the brethren over and over, love one another, love one another. And so that theme of love is prominent in his writings. He wrote his letters from the capital city of the province of Asia called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was a large city in the center of worship of the pagan goddess Diana. It's always important to look at the setting in which an author writes, and so it is with John, So therefore, Roman numeral two, characteristic of John's writing. Here's a little historic background. First, John, then the audience to whom he writes, and then third, his style. Now, I admit that I'm a lover of literature, and I find this most interesting, and I hope you do as well, because it gives us much deeper insight into John's character. John's style is very different from the Apostle Paul. Paul writes in the tradition of Greek rhetoric, like a lawyer who's building his argument. And for the most part, a Pauline letter is really just one continuous sentence. On the other hand, John writes more poetically, like a psalmist or a writer of Proverbs. He writes, repeats himself, throws in a few metaphors and symbols, and then repeats the idea again, but a little differently. Now, whether or not we are aware of it, we are the children of Greek thought and the method of argument associated with the style of Paul uh, that is logical and uses the left side of the brain. That's more of us. 
Not all of us, but some of us. But the more right side of the brain, which some of us have, is is employed by John, who's more artistic and tends to spend a lot of time on just one incident, like he does in his gospel. For example, he devotes the entire chapter in John 9 about Jesus' encounter with a blind man. This is the way a poet or a psalmist looks at an event rather than the philosophers. And with that style in his letter, John typically does not sustain a clear line of argument for really more than a few verses, although that chapter 9 was an exception. He tends to wander from subject to subject, and it would do no good to say, John, you already made that point in chapter 1 with only a few slight changes, and now you're you're stating it again. And John, by the way, is anyone doing your editing? (laughs) Well, now we know all Scripture is the Word of God, inspired by God, and God is the ultimate author. And yet... God allows John to write in his own style, just as as he does every other writer of Scripture. And he, providentially, is the right one to write these letters. To put his writing into terms of an image, think of a large, serene pond of water. A writer, John, throws a rock out on that undisturbed water. We watch his small, concentric circles of water move outward. And then John, in effect, says, well, that's enough of that theme. And then he throws in another rock out on the water. And a new set of circles now begin to move outward, and some intermingle with the circles from the first rock. And then the author surprises us again by throwing another rock out on the water's surface. That's the way First John is written. He throws out these really big ideas. They cause ripples like, God is light. God is life. God is love. And these are profound concepts about who Jesus is. And then John follows those statements with warnings to the reader about false doctrine, immoral lifestyles, and cautions them to be careful about to whom they listen and to remember what they already know to be true, just as the word still caution us today. So really, not much has actually changed uh, when it comes to his warnings. Roman numeral three, Gnosticism. One element in our study of Scripture is to understand the setting of the writers, which helps explain why they wrote on some of the subjects and put emphasis on certain aspects of faith. Therefore, in this introduction to John's letters, I want to expand on the first heresy to attack the first and uh, second century churches, and is still used by the enemy to send mixed intelligence, as the military would call it, to believers about the truth of Jesus. Now, Gnosticism is a Greek philosophy, and the word comes from the Greek word gnosis, that's G-N-O-S-I-S, it's a silent G, and it means to know. So first I'd like to give a little history of Gnosticism, and then secondly point out the implication for today's church from its effects. Now when I say church, remember, don't think about a building, we're talking about Christ followers. So Roman numeral 3a the origins of Gnosticism. The 4th century B.C. Greek philosopher Plato, whom many of us have heard of, gets credit for developing Gnosticism, and Plato's influence on Western thought was enormous. Plato was a duelist. Not to be confused with someone who takes a revolver and is involved in a duel, like, (laughs) unfortunately, Alexander Hamilton was. But dualism is the belief that there are two realities. It's also referred to as Platonism thinking. Some still think this, and I don't know, anybody ever think about Platonic thought, but Platonic thought is dualist, and that claims that the physical world we see every day is not the real world. 
Instead, the real world is all spirit and exists somewhere out there, out of time and space. It claims the physical world is a flawed representative of the perfect spiritual world. Therefore, material is bad, including people. But the spirit world is good. For example, Plato would say when you look at any object, let's say a chair, he would say it's only a poor imitation of a perfect chair which exists somewhere out there in the spirit world. Okay, that's a lot of philosophy. But what are the implications of this? Well, these implications are on everything in life because if spirit and flesh are separate entities in which spirit is good but flesh is bad, then no matter how someone behaves, it does not affect their spiritual world. They believe that's his thinking. Now, that's very convenient philosophy because it means a Gnostic believes he can live an immoral life and still claim to be a spiritual person. Do you ever hear anyone say something like that? They're a spiritual person? I, I hear it all the time. Me too. Of course, we know people who live like that, and they say they're spiritual, but I tell you, you couldn't tell by um, their faith by the way they live. And, but, and so what, what about salvation and, and the afterlife? Well, you must first understand the secret, mysterious, hidden knowledge, they say, again, also known as gnosis. And only these spe- special people have access to this secret knowledge. So who has this secret knowledge? Well, very special people. Well, how do they know they're special people? <laughs> they claim it. <laughs> they consider themselves to be elitist and special. Today we also have the influences of Gnosticism and some of our educators in schools who also write books and teach it. Now, they don't typically use the word Gnosticism. That's pretty much out of fashion. But, for example, I'll give you... Uh, when you go into a typical bookstore, if you still do that, or if you look on Amazon... Look for books in the religion section, which have titles which start with words like The Secret Life of Whatever, or The Secret Book of Whatever, or The Lost Books of Whatever, or The Hidden Books of Whatever. These books will claim to uncover new or heretofore hidden information about spiritual things, which are in fact ancient ideas that have been proven, disproven, way back by believers in the 3rd and 4th centuries, like, for instance, you might have heard about the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas, which report to give new revelations about Jesus. But the ideas, we already know, have been disclaimed by theologians and even historians. This is Dr. Greg Heddington, and Greg, can you give us a review? Sure. So to review... Gnosticism was basically originated by Plato, which is also called Platonic Thought, and it states that spirit is good, but matter is bad. And they claim that the only truth comes from a very few enlightened people who have secret or hidden knowledge. Gnosticism was later nuanced by a man named Arius, who claimed that Jesus was only human which means he was created out of bad material, and therefore he could not be God, because even Arius believed that God must be perfect. So that's the category of Gnosticism called Arianism. Regarding Platonic thought, I remember in college when my buddies and I learned about what Platonism was about, and we would describe our buddies as either having a Platonic relationship with a woman, which involved no physical involvement. I don't know. Did you ever talk in college like that? I don't know. That's Yeah, sure the way we thought was kind of normal. 
blood, platonic meant purely friendship. And of course, occasionally one of our friends would admit, well, my relationship's no longer platonic, and then we give them a hard time for caving in. Now, the other teaching was uh, related to, to uh, Gnosticism was docetism, which comes from the Greek word to see. Docetists believe that Jesus only seemed to have a physical body because God, who is spirit and good, could not possibly come to earth in the form of an evil body. So Jesus must have been purely spirit. One of the claims was, well, if he wasn't spirit, if he was on the earth, where are his footprints? It's a little bit of an absurd comment to say in the sand, you know, a few years later, even there would be footprints. But as you know, some people will believe anything. I mean, think of the polarization today in America, where people question long-held beliefs on topics that once were agreed upon. Uh, I've just read that uh, kids 18 to 39, only 23, believe that the Holocaust actually existed. And we know Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda for Adolf Hitler, once said, if you repeat something long enough and loud enough, people will believe anything. So let me make this one comment before we break. We must remember that a lie remains a lie, even if that lie is repeated a thousand times. And Bill, this might be a good time for a break. I love that last comment, too. I'm going to chew on that one because that is uh, such a good remark. We're going to continue after a short break uh, studying the uh, the uh, uh, first, second, and third John with Dr. Greg Heddington. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Back to the show. We're in a brand new series on the letters of the Apostle uh, John to the early church with Dr. Greg Heddington, and we're kind of getting a nice overview and getting things underway here. Greg, this is going great. Well, Bill, it's great, and we're uh, we're in our first lesson here on this yep. series, and um, uh, we've been talking about the characteristics of John's writing and how his style is more artistic than the Apostle Paul, not in a, in a critical or, or negative way at all. It's just. John uh, John is much more uh, moving from different points, different points. And Paul writes a lot more like, uh, probably a, like a lawyer, kind of arguing topics with another lawyer. So it's a different style. And John begins to warn the believers about this first heresy of the church, which is Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means to know, but it actually refers to certain Greeks who claim they were the elite, who understood, who knew the mysteries that most people don't know. And so they had insider information, they thought, which is the opposite of what we believe as Christ followers, because we're not exclusive, we're inclusive, as Jesus says in John 3.16, whosoever would believe in him will have eternal life. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral 3b, what were the implications for the church regarding Gnosticism? Now, I know I'm going into a lot of detail about Gnosticism, but this heresy that will plague the church for the first three centuries uh, is also explains why so many of the letters in the New Testament emphasize over and over the divinity of Jesus, and not so much his humanity, although we know he was 100% human and 100% divine. 
Immorality is just as popular today, although by whatever name it's known, and Gnosticism claims that one can live an immoral life and still claim to be not only spiritual, but some of them actually claim to be Christ followers. Now, we all have some friends that believe that. The consequences were this thinking was beginning to disrupt the church community. Oh, yes, and Gnosticism also denied the physical death and resurrection of Jesus as the God-man, and therefore, they believed salvation did not come through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for our sins, but rather salvation came through acquiring the mystical, special knowledge about God which they had. So this heresy of Gnosticism, also known as Platonism, is important for us to understand as we read John's letters, as well as other New Testament letters. Why is that? Well, because by the time John writes his gospel sometime in the 80s AD, and then writes his three letters, the church is composed of more Greeks than Jews. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it's the Greeks who had the most influence, had been most influenced by Platonic thinking, and not the Jews. The early church had to be clearly taught what it meant to be a Christ follower, and this is just as true today. It was of special concern to the Apostle John because he wrote his letters in the vicinity of the great but highly idolatrous city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and it was the capital of the province of Asia. The population was about 300,000, which made it very large for the time, and it was sophisticated and beautiful and wealthy, and it was also the center of worship for the pagan goddess Diana. This is Dr. Greg Heddington, and Greg, what was their immorality? Now, part of the immorality included temple prostitutes as part of their pagan ritual, and the great temple of Diana was an enormous, well, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. John wrote his letters to other churches in the surrounding regions who were also influenced by brazen immorality, for which the Greeks displayed no shame, just as we have friends in America who, they live like this, they don't feel any reason to explain their their, their living, but friends, you know, just as some people have said we are one generation from losing our, quote, experiment in democracy, so John also knew that Christ followers were one generation removed from living in a purely pagan world which did not understand the truth, the light, and the love of Jesus. And the issues have not really changed today, have they? So how do we stay on the path of truth which Jesus taught us? Roman numeral four, walking in the light. John says the answer is found in 1 John 1, 7, when he says, walk in the light. And to walk in the light is to be open and honest with the Lord and others when we pretend to be holy and try to impress others with our righteous good works. And that's sadly when we step out of the light into the shadows, when we try to become somebody what we're not. Sir Walter Scott, the great Scottish poet, put it this way, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Well, it's a well-known quotation from someone in the United Kingdom, but it's so true. After all, it's a waste of time to try and schmooze God, which, by the way, schmooze is (laughs) one of those good Yiddish terms we use, and 
We didn't realize, oh, that was Yiddish. I didn't know. I guess I speak Yiddish. So God already knows what we are really like. And we get a lot more accomplished when we open up to our selfishness, confess it, turn away from it, receive forgiveness, and do our best to move forward in the light so we can receive his joy and we're back on the right road. By the way, the word right road is the literal Hebrew meaning for the word blessed in the Bible. I didn't know that. It's, it's fascinating. And, and, and we're blessed when we follow the Lord. So literally in the Old Testament, uh, blessed is the man who walks in... Let's see, that's someone. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, for his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's the word blessed. It means literally right road. Now, let's think about the Trinity for a minute. Let's think about it this way. God the Son prays for us in heaven. We can find that in Romans 8.34. God the Spirit prays for us in our hearts. Check that out in Romans 8.26 and 27. And we have fellowship with the Father through the Son, and the Father has fellowship with us through the Spirit. Now, do you ever think about the fact that because of that, we lead a supernatural life in Christ, as followers of Christ? We cannot truly follow Jesus unless he abides in us. Jesus, according to Scripture, actually lives his life through us by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. What's it called, Greg? It's called incarnation, which is another term for that wonderful passage in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, one way I've found that uh, helps me to walk in the light is to start each day as soon as I'm awake. And it's really best when I will actually get my feet over the side of the bed. And I'll just say, thank you, Lord. I may go on with a few more things. Help me today to be walking with you. But at least in my mind, I am thanking the Lord that I've got another day. And so maybe I'll do a devotional just up to five minutes. It doesn't matter the amount of time, but it starts the day off on the right, on the right road. So we're blessed. It's not magical, and I don't feel inspired every day, so I remind myself that faith is not about feeling good. But it is a choice, a decision about what is true, because some people are sincere about what they believe, but they're often sincerely wrong. We want to, our lives to express integrity about the eternal truth of Jesus. So as Jesus says in Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. By the way, uh, speaking of sincere lives, walking in sincerity, sincere comes from two Latin words, sine and sire, which literally mean without wax. Hmm. Now, in the Roman Empire, sculptors who carved statues all around the Roman cities would sometimes make mistakes as they hammered out the marble statues. I mean, I cannot even imagine hammering out marble statues. So that that was their business. They'd put them out in the sun for sale, and hopefully people would come by and buy them. And then they would make some mistakes occasionally, so they would cover up their mistakes by filling in the cracks and the defects in their statues with wax, because wax is not easily visible. Well, everything was good until the statue was exposed to the hot sun, and then the wax began to melt. Therefore, the 
savvy customer learned to check the statue closely before they bought it to be certain the statue was sincere, that is, without wax. We want our lives to be lived sincerely without wax, with the integrity before our Lord in all that we do. Now, we'll never be perfect, never live perfect lives, but God says to us, I have chosen my people to be plan A, to unite all people, that they may be reconciled to me, because there is no plan B. That is my, as some people call it, divine conspiracy. So God says, you are my hands and feet, and when you sin, confess it. Turn from it, claim my forgiveness, and get back on the road again, because I will never leave you or forsake you. One of my early, early passages to remember from Hebrews 13, verse 5. And John explains how we walk in chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, If we walk in the light, is he in the light? He is in the light. Then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. Wow, it's a passage. It's powerful. May we live in the light with sincerity, without wax, as a loving witness to our Lord for everyone. And then when they see us, we know that we are living and giving glory to God as he would have us give. And that's the introduction to the letter of John Bill. Bill, let me just say one more word. I think it's important to remember that God always acts first. He's the one that came to us. I mean, he died way before we were born, way before we knew him at all. But he was there for us. So we respond not of like, oh, no, I've got to be good. I've got to be obedient. I've got to follow the law. We we respond out of joy. We're thankful, out of gratitude. And I just want to throw that out. If anybody's feeling burdened like, oh, I've got to do this right. No. We thank the Lord for saving us from the slavery of sin. Amen? Amen to that. And I, I love the reminder, Greg, that you gave us about how faith is not about emotion. You can swing your feet out of bed some mornings, and you don't feel quite as emotionally energized and connected, but it's still what you do is you give thanks to God for another day. Amen. This is great. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.